Let's Talk Native is produced at the LTN Studios on the Cataraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. We break all the rules for Native media by peeling back the layers of assimilation and indoctrination. No prayers, no buffalo speeches, and no spirituality shows. While this podcast does not provide a path to spiritual enlightenment, we do take a tough look at history, oppression, and our survival. We highlight the voices of Native activists, writers, poets, artists, thinkers, and musicians who are fighting for the rights of Indigenous people all over Turtle Island. We may step on a few toes through our examination of culture, art, politics, history, and identity. But the real goal here is to bring our people together by breaking down what separates us. In this moment of historical change and social justice, Our voices matter now more than ever before. So, welcome to Let's Talk Native with John Kane. Sego, welcome to Let's Talk Native. Um, Got an interesting show for you today. Uh, it's probably not a big surprise that I'm going to talk about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm sure that what I'm going to say about her is different than what you've heard else, uh, elsewhere. Um, I will say right off the bat, I do have a video that's on our YouTube channel, which is Let's Talk Native TV, and it, uh, the title of it's Legally Invalid. And it discusses Ruth Bader Ginsburg's... Um, not just her her ruling, but the opinion that she wrote in the city of Cheryl versus Oneida back in 2005, where she specifically cites the doctrine of Christian discovery as footnote number one, uh, which contributed to her her decision and and um, not just her vote, but her her decision and what she wrote in terms of her uh, her opinion on, on the subject. Now, I, I, I bring that up and, and I bring her up because there's a lot of people who are just, you know, praising her life. And look, look sorry, uh, you know, sorry she died. I mean, it was it was kind of expected. She was in her 80s. Um, she's been struggling with cancer for a number of years. It's, it's not like a, a big surprise. There's a lot more politics associated with it than uh, as far as what her replacement is going to be, who's going to replace and that kind of stuff. But in the in the midst of all this is just an outpouring and of course there was also i I think there was a tv special or something like that i didn't really pay that much attention to it but uh over the last year you know and she's become a bit of a a rock star for the um for the left i mean they were start referring her to her not just as rbg but the notorious rbg and you know she's earned a lot of um a praise for her role on the on the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, some of that praise, I mean, when, when she's when she's praised as somehow this great dissenter, you know, somebody who you know pioneered the direction of the court and that kind of stuff. Eh, she almost prided herself not only in her um, ruling with the majority. Uh, in the vast majority of cases that that she ever got to got to rule on. But the fact that the court itself in, is overwhelmingly unanimous or near unanimous in most of its most of its rulings, and you know, of course they always highlight because of the the right versus left, the you know the, the decisions that are you know five four one way or the other. So that's that's always 
the issues that, that get discussed. But I'll tell you, a lot of her rulings, she was rarely the deciding, the deciding vote. And in many of her rulings, she, she ruled with, with the rest of the court. Without being some, you know, some great dissenter. Look, I, I know she's she's oftentimes praised for the uh, the role that she played in perhaps swaying the court on on women's issues and even some LGBTB two uh, 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 S um, cases and that kind of stuff. But I gotta say, if, if you're a woman on a court and mo through most of her tenure on the Supreme Court, there was only two women. If you're only one of two women on the Supreme Court. It's not a big leap to uh, to be one of the voices of reason on women's issues. That's not, you know, I, I, that's not very sensational to me. I mean, I would expect the women on a court to make sure that these courts don't um, get away with the chauvinism that they would have gotten away with had there been no women on the court. The, the real challenge for me is when somebody of a specific ethnicity, skin color, if you want to go there, <laughs> um, religious belief, can apply a certain level of justice to people who are not of, of their, you know, uh, grouping as, as a people. So when I hear somebody like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was who Jewish, uh, from N New York City, from, from, I think from Brooklyn, I guess, uh, and who is touted as a, you know, a civil rights champion, then I hear some things that she, she's done that certainly would, would challenge that. So the question that I also have is, so how do you judge somebody? Do you judge them by the, the good that they've done in their, life, in their lives? Or do you judge them by the, by the bad things they've done in their lives? And we get into this question of, well, if somebody did a, made a mistake or did something terrible, can they right it? Um, or can they be, are they redeemable, so to speak? I mean, look, if, if somebody commits a, a rape or a murder, it, you don't balance that against all the good that they've done. And I'm not suggesting that Ruth Bader Ginsburg raped any, or murdered anybody. But there's a couple of rulings, and this, uh, this City of Cheryl versus Oneida Indian Nation case is certainly one of those cases that I think is very, very problematic. And... Um, and she never righted the ruling. I mean, it's not, and, and she wrote the opinion on it, which to me, the opinion is even sometimes worse than, than the ruling. Uh, you know, look, Native people weren't used to having cases ruled against us. But when the opinions are written, all of those words in the opinion, they become legal dicta that are used over and over and over again in this idea of establishing precedence in, in these rulings. And that's how a ruling that might be narrow can be used more broadly because of all the, all, all the stuff that's written in the opinion. And so, you know, the, the ruling is one thing, but the, but the written opinion becomes, uh, actually has, has a bit of a life of its own. So, so when I think about Ruth Bader Ginsburg in her ruling, and I'll, I'll get into explaining what the city of Cheryl versus Oneida was in, in just a second here. Um, but when I, when I think of how egregious that ruling was, I'm sorry, I, ca I can't like give her a pass because she did other good stuff. I mean, do, ruling properly and, and really ruling in the, uh, you know, to, to advance justice, that should not seem like the exceptional thing. That should be the default. We should expect people to do that on the court, regardless of who appointed them. 
I mean, the expectation is that, yes, the court will, will rule properly based on not just, well, of course, they have to rule not on, law, on justice, but on law, um, which aren't necessarily the same thing, obviously. <laughs> I've talked about that before. So when you, know, you, you see a bunch of rulings that, that seem, oh, yeah, those are really positive things, and she wrote a really good opinion. Okay, but was there anything that was striking in the opinion that, 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 that really changed something dramatically, or was the time just right for a change? Because when I see some rulings that, that she's made, and, and the city of Sherrill versus Oneida is one of them, um, the, there was an opportunity there. There was an opportunity to, to wrong what had, or to right what had been established wrongs. And in, in the, at the end, she defaulted to all of the standard white supremacy, racist legal doctrines to rule against the Oneidas. And, and it's problematic. So, um, Again, this is a woman who pride, you know, who, who oftentimes gets associated with being this great dissenter when that's not really necessarily the case. But let me talk about the, uh, the, the city of Cheryl versus Oneida. In this case, the Oneida nation was, uh, was purchasing land within an area that the, uh, the, that the Supreme Court had ruled they had the right to sue for ter- uh, fair title to. Uh, and... You know, this ruling was back in the 70s, but there had never been a settlement on the, the Oneida land claim. The, the, it would never got worked out between the states, uh, between the state or the counties and, and the Oneida nation. It, it was just got mired with, you know, some factionalism on the side of the Oneidas, you know, with the Oneida tribal Wisconsin, the Oneidas in Wisconsin, the Oneidas in Ontario, and the Oneidas in New York, not necessarily seeing eye to eye and, you know, who you know, who should take lead on some of these, these negotiations, but not, nothing ever got settled there. So the Oneidas in New York, they at some point decided they're going to, they're just going to acquire lands within their, their ancestral area, within that area that the Supreme Court basically ruled that they had a legal claim to. And although the Supreme Court wasn't giving them the land, they're just saying they had a, they had a legal claim to. So, they were, and, and among the, this land was the land that they, they built their multi-million you know, dollar casino on, Turning Stone. But in the city of Cheryl, uh, the Oneidas had bought some lands and they were operating a couple of uh, um, gas stations, you know, cigarette stores, uh, and they were no longer paying taxes on that land because they were say, are saying, we are reclaiming the land. We're not just purchasing it. They purchased it on the open market, but they're not just holding it as a, uh, as a property under a, you know, a, a, a village or county or state deed, that they were reclaiming it as Oneida land. So this goes all the way up to, uh, up to the Supreme Court. And the, the Supreme Court essentially, well, let me, it, it, it played out in the lower courts before it gets to the Supreme Court. And, you know, the Oneidas lost, and then they won, and then it gets all the way up to the Supreme Court. And different things were taken into consideration at different levels in, in this, you know, in, the, in this legal battle. By the time it gets up to, up to the Supreme Court, Ruth Bader Ginsburg not only rules against the Oneidas, but she overturns, you know, key aspects of some of the, uh, the lower court's rulings. There are three legal doctrines that are at play in this case. One is called latches, which is essentially 
um, how much time has transpired since this land was being reclaimed? You know, can you can you make a an argument for land claims after a certain amount of time has transpired? So that's this I, this this doctrine of latches. The other one is the doctrine of acquiescence, which is me, which is close to latches. But what it means is, if you remain silent for too long, <laughs> then Whatever, uh, you know, uh, um, this is long acquiescence is, uh, is conclusive of the latter's title and rightful authority. So if there is a dispute, a dispute between two, um, um, two entities, and this might be between states, but it's not necessarily just to, to native land claims. But if there are two um, co- conflicting views on the, the land title or the authority over land, if so much time has passed, then whoever's maintained that authority for that longer period of time, that, that acquiescence, you know, all that time that transpired that where nothing was ever brought up um, uh, is conclusive uh, enough authority for the one who's maintained control over it last, so to speak. Then, so that's the acquiescence doctrine. And then the doctrine of impossibility. And I like this one. Just because the, the whole idea of saying that we have a doctrine of impossibility, like if something is impossible, then, then, we can't, then we can't acknowledge it. Well, what they're calling impossible is the idea that Native people could reclaim land, period. And, and, and if it's land that the, another a township or a county or the state has maintained uh, or has taken over, however they got it. I mean, because the doctrine of impossibility does not consider whether it's uh, the land was acquired legally or not. They're saying, but if they've had it for a long enough period of time and of a certain jurisdiction, there's a doctrine of impossibility that we can em- employ that says it is impossible to return land that was that has been surrendered to another jurisdiction how, by hook or by crook to return that back to its original jurisdiction. They said it's impossible. Now, the latter, I mean, that, that last one, the doctrine of impossibility, what, what is so... Um, wrong about that one is that 200 miles down the road from Oneida is Seneca territory. And, and Seneca's had a, um, a dispute with the city of Salamanca over a lease. And it was settled in, uh, not in a, in a court, but it was settled by an act of Congress called the Salamanca uh, Lease Settlement Act. And in that the Congress provided a mechanism for the Senecas to reacquire lost land, not not feed a trust application, not not going through the Bureau of Indian Affairs necessarily, but just a one paragraph uh, uh, addition to the to the settlement agreement that said that they could they could a thirty day process they could they could just announce that they're they're reacquiring this land and. The Interior Department and others could could comment. They had 30 days to determine why this land um, should not fall under a, a, a specific provision called the Non-Intercourse Act, which means it becomes native land. And, and it's just a 30-day process. So they had in place, through an act of Congress, a very specific streamlined process for the Seneca Nation to reacquire lands that another jurisdiction had taken control of and that they were returning back to under their own jurisdiction, which, which completely defies Ruth Bader Ginsburg's use of this impossibility doctrine that she was citing from someplace out west, you know, where uh, the land was checkerboarded and all this other, uh, you know, all this other stuff. A completely different scenario 
than what the um, the Oneidas were reacquiring in, in terms uh, in terms of purchasing off the free market, which is what the the Act of Congress associated with the Seneca Nation was uh, was enabling the Senecas to do: buy the land and then uh, and just take it off the tax rolls, basically, and and assert it as Seneca title, not as state title, and not held in trust by the federal government. None of that stuff. So I mean, her ruling was was just wrong there, and. And you got to believe that some of the, the basis for that being so wrong was her bias and her and that bias towards towards racism. And one of the reasons that it's easy to come to that conclusion is and I'll get into a little bit more on the latches and acquiescence. But when she cites in footnote number one, the doctrine of Christian discovery, that is is problematic. I mean, for one thing, she's Jewish <laughs> and she's citing a, uh, a doctrine of discovery, which is basically born out of uh, papal bulls from the Vatican in the 15th century, late 15th century and early 16th century. Um, as you know, basically saying that native people, in fact, I'll, I'll, I'll read what she quoted as the, um, um, when, when she talks about the doctrine of discovery, she's under the doctrine of discovery. And this is from footnote number one in City of Cheryl versus Oneida, uh, written by uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She, she lists this as footnote number one. Under the doctrine of discovery, fee title to lands occupied by Indians when the colonists arrived became vested in the sovereign. First, the discovering European nation and later the original states and the United States. So in other words, many people weren't sovereign. As, as, and the way she writes it, she said it became vested in the sovereign, meaning, meaning the, the colonists, meaning the the the, the crown uh, uh, that had just just only because they discovered, not because they had somehow won title, purchased title, you know, uh, you know, to the you know to the uh, out of spoils of uh, of war or anything like that. She just, but once uh, the colonists arrived. Our, the title became theirs just by arriving. And she doesn't say how, just by, just simply by virtue of arriving. And then it first became, you know, the, um, the European, discovering European nations, uh, and then the States and the United States. I mean, that is, that is not only a racist dogma, a racist doctrine. I mean, it is actually called that in the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. That's why I call the, uh, the video on Ruth Bader Ginsburg legally invalid because that's exactly what the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples calls this kind of uh, of legal doctrine and practice. They they said it's legally invalid, but this is what Ruth Bader Ginsburg used as her as part of her foundational belief. So when I when I hear people talk about her advancing civil rights. I'm sorry if you're if you're harboring something as racist as the doctrine of Christian discovery, and and again, ironically, she's not even Christian, but but a church dogma that becomes somewhat codified into law, the idea that she could actually do that uh, shows not just a bias, and not just a bias towards law, but a a, a bias towards some of the some of the very um, uh, ideologies that lie at the at the foundation of white supremacy. This idea that that the church is infallible, and that they could make these kinds of rulings. All right, let me talk a little bit about 
um, uh, the latches and acquiescence. Now, I explained what they were, but here's the thing. When, when anytime somebody says, well, too much time uh, elapsed and, you're, and, you're sil- and you were silent for too long, the Oneidas couldn't even have their day in court until the 1970s. I mean, this, you know, she refers to uh, from 1805 when, when this, somehow this, the title to this land was, was taken over by the city of Sherrill or New York State or whatever. She says, from 1805 to present day, the delay in seeking equitable relief um, evoke the doctrines of latches, acquiescence, and impossibility. So she, that's where she says all three of those legal principles uh, apply because too much time elapsed since, uh, you know, since 1805. Well, the, like I said, the, the problem is the United couldn't even get their day in court until the 1970s. So to suggest that they were somehow silent since 1805, just because you didn't hear the voices doesn't mean they were silent. And, and, and the fact that they couldn't even, they had to uh, submit test cases just to uh, overcome the legal hurdles to, to get into federal court. And, you know, and of course, they also, there were other, you know, policies that were, that were generated that were going to, supposed to resolve some of the, uh, the illegal land um, seizures by the states and the counties. And none of them were equitable. I mean, one of the things that she also cites, <laughs> cites in this thing is that um, the very problems caused, uh, that are caused by um, jurisdictional issues on lands that, uh, that are attempted to be reclaimed by Native people is the very reason they have that Congress uh, put together uh, this, this feed of trust process but where a Native territory or Native people could, uh, could apply to the Interior Department to have lands taken into trust for them by the federal government. Of course, that's a whole nother problem. The, the, the fact is that the feed of trust application is very limited on who can use it. If you don't, if you can't clearly demonstrate that you are under U.S. jurisdiction, not at the time of the application, but back in 1834, <laughs> I mean, or, uh, or, or, or I'm sorry, 1934, you can't even you can prove you you can't even apply for this thing. And and of course, you don't actually own the land. You're actually um, acquiring lands how, by whatever means, but then you're asking the federal government to hold the title for you. Which is kind of a problem for 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 Haudenosaunee because we have not necessarily submitted to that that notion that our lands should be held in trust for us by the uh, the federal government and and although that's that's that might be common practice in in some parts of the United States and Canada that's not something that we've necessarily agreed with so I mean there. When somebody says, "Well, there's there's another way to solve your problem," yeah, but the the hoops that you want us to jump through to go to solve that problem do, do not necessarily result in what we're what we're really after here. So, you know, I'm I'm very very troubled by Ruth Bader Ginsburg's uh, ruling in the city of Cheryl versus Oneida. Not only did and and again, I want to be reiterate that the Oneidas re- purchased this land. They didn't. Um, uh, they weren't trying to have this land awarded to them by a court. They had, or had, they had already bought the, per, the property. And this was Ruth Bader Ginsburg saying, no, you can't do that. You, you can buy it, but you have to, you have to own it as, um, as, as Americans do. You, know, you have to own it in a state deed. 
and you cannot claim jurisdiction over that land. You know, I mean, she goes on to say how difficult it would be um, if the Oneidas were purchasing uh, parcels and created a, a checkerboard of varying um, jurisdictions. And the, the crazy part about that is that's exactly how lands were taken from Native people in the first place, parcel by parcel. And then this idea that they would they would uh, enforce overarching jurisdiction over lands, whether they were held by Native people or not. So what she's saying is difficult. It was only difficult if we created the checkerboards by reacquiring last land, lost land, not if the if the states or or you know private land purchasers created the checkerboard by uh, by swindling, leasing, whatever lands from from native people, it is again to me you cannot ignore the racism associated with this ruling, and you and you can't give her a pass on this. And the and the reason I get it, I come back to the fact that, that she never righted this wrong, she never corrected it. So when people talk about redemption, when people talk about, uh, well, you have to take, you know, take her whole life in, you know, in its entirety and, and, uh, and what keeps, keep a scorecard. If you've never removed and if you've not, never done anything to restore the injustice that you created with a ruling, then I'm sorry. You just, you just can't um, ignore a bad ruling and say, well, that bad ruling is, is, you know, outnumbered by the number of good rulings. This was the opportunity. And, and, and again, I got to also have to say this, this, this was only eight justices ruled on this. This was a seven to one ruling. So it was, it was nearly unanimous. She was not the dissenter in any way, shape or form. Um, and, and again, her putting the doctrine of Christian discovery into the uh, the legal record, even even as only a footnote, uh, again it damages the credibility of the court. It it establishes a racist uh, um, doctrine as a, as part of a foundational legal principle, and 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 of course these these other <laughs> these other doctrines latches, acquiescence, and impossibility. Uh, they're they're weak at best. It wouldn't have taken a legal genius to figure out their a way around this. Certainly, the doc, the doctrine of impossibility could have been negated simply by the the Salamanca Lease Settlement Act and the Land Acquisitions Clause. That was a no brainer. Shame on the lawyers for the Oneidas for for not uh, being more proactive as it relates to that. But but you're the judge, and and you're citing some of these other cases, and. Uh, you're, you're supposed to be in the, uh, making these rulings in the interest of justice and, and the constitutionality of the law that, that is being applied. And, and this was, this was not a difficult case that, uh, to rule on. I mean, you, other issues could have been raised, but, the, but at, at its core, this notion that, uh, to suggest that in 2005, you were going to affirm legal doctrine that had already, you know, that were sometimes 50 or 100 years old to say, no, Native people can't reclaim land. It, it just, I mean, especially when you consider, again, she's Jewish and this longstanding debate and in, in battle between Israel and Palestine. I don't know how you, you know, somebody who is of an oppressed group of people in, uh, in the way that 
Jewish people and Israelis in particular uh, hold themselves could not have considered considered this differently. So, um, so I, and that's just one example. You know, we're gonna uh, we're, we'll, we'll take a break here in a little bit. But um, and when we come back, there's a, there's a couple of other cases that and, and and some other statements I think that are that are worth noting. And I and again I want to reiterate that this isn't about trying to demonize. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. This is about trying to give some balance for all those people who think that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, what is or was this champion of human rights, that's not necessarily the case. And you know, I I think you have to consider the rulings that she did make within the context of who she was as an individual. And I think that's that's why I think considering her Jewish faith and and her uh, you know her her background in looking at another oppressed people like native people is is reasonable but also if she's made rulings that favored women in the workplace in particular when she's had to go through her own personal uh challenges whether it's within the uh um, you know being a lawyer I mean, she couldn't get hired by law firm. She, you know, after, in spite of her grades and all this other, the barrier, the glass ceiling was because she was a woman. So when she fights for those women's rights, it's a very personal thing. And, and there's, you know, I'm not saying it's a conflict of interest, but, but it, it uh, quite to the contrary, she is advancing something that has a, a personal, that she has a personal stake in. So anyway, um, look, we'll, we'll take a break here and we come back. I, I do want to talk about the Asian American band that fought to um, copyright their name, The Slants, and how that affected the, uh, the copyright protection for the Washington football team's name and Ruth Bader Ginsburg's ruling in that case as well. We'll do that when we come back. This is John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. Hey, thanks for coming back. This is John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. Hey, I want to give a shout out to the, the folks listening on WPFW in Washington, D.C. Um, we are talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and, and, and we're probably offering a perspective you, you may not have heard before. And, and some of you may be aware that she made this ruling in the city of Cheryl versus the Oneida Indian Nation of New York uh, in a manner that... It, you know, for for many of you, but you think it's probably inconsistent. I mean, when I when I'm talking to some of the the liberal folks in New York City, when I'm doing some of my live events, and I t- say, well, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg isn't exactly a hero to us. I mean, the, people are appalled. They can't believe it. They can't believe that you know th- this liberal darling, this darling of the left on the Supreme Court, who's been there for so long, um, had bad bad rulings and she, and she certainly did and and like i said for the most part she ruled with the majority m- most of the time uh, in fact she she went on record saying that the the overwhelming majority of rulings at the supreme court the court that she's been a part of her, you know for, for for so long um 
most of the time they they rule together, uh, if not unanimous, near unanimously. And you know, so the the split court, the five four rulings, they are the exception to the rule. Um, one of the cases that uh, unanimous cases that she ruled on was um, uh, a case. Um, I, I can't remember. Uh, Lamb Lamb was one of the the, the parties of the case, but it's a it's a case called the 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 um, referred to as the Slants case, and this was an Asian band that um, Asian American band that wanted to copyright the name Slants for the name of their band, and they were denied that application through the uh, Patent and Trademark Office. And the reason they were denied is because there was an um, a law passed called the Lanham Act uh, that prohibited the uh, issuance of copyrights for derogatory terms. Metal V. Tan was the name of uh, was the case, if you want to look it up. Um, but if you just look up the Slants case, you'll find it as well. Uh, now, the word Slants is is a derogatory um, word that was used. It was a racial slur being used for generally for Asian people, uh, but. This band wanted to wanted to reclaim that name, not unlike many uh, you know black performers try to ha- have reclaimed the N word uh, in their lyrics or in you know uh, song titles and, and that kind of thing. So they figured if they could take the name back, that they would you know they they, they would take ownership of it, kind of uh, kind of deal. So they were fighting the, the Patent and Trademark Office for the right to uh, to trademark this this name now the implication was at the same time that the 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 patent trademark office was ruling against the um this asian band uh tam they um uh, they were also made some rulings against the washington football team for their use of the r word as a racial slur for their name so in a way the the washington football team was smart in delaying their um uh, litigation over this, and instead let a a a party enter into this in, into this um, debate over the patent and trademark office that was of the ethnic group that was using a slur and wanting to take ownership of racial slur, rather than in the case of the Washington football team, a, a team that has no affiliation with being native but wants to use a racial slur for uh, for native people as their name. They sat back and let this thing play out with um, with with the band Slants uh, fighting for their right to do the name. Now, there was no question that this that the Supreme Court knew the ramifications of this, and they knew that while in the in the case of uh, of the Slants. It was an Asian group of uh, Americans that wanted to reclaim a racial slur, so they weren't insulting somebody else. Basically, they were they were trying to reclaim this racial slur for their name, which is different than you know a a white group you know claiming the N word or a, a, a you know a, a white owned football team uh, claiming the uh, racial slur for Native people. Uh, so, but they used they ruled unanimously in in favor of this, knowing that they were uh, undoing some of the the battle that you know Suzanne Harjo and um, Amanda Blackhorse and and others had been successful in fighting the Washington Football Team. So, again, was this a proper ruling? I don't know. I mean, here's the thing: the reason that the Lanham Act came out in the first place was because. It's not that somebody can't call themselves, 
the the R word or the N word or the, I mean nobody's prohibiting the speech, but the idea that a government should provide a legal protection for somebody to make money to commercialize a word, there should be some limitations on on whether a government can protect somebody's use of a of a racial slur. That's what the Lanham Act was all about. This ruling uh, relating to the slants. Um, totally under undermined uh, undermined that and i and obviously uh created a, a certain vindication for the uh for dan snyder and the washington football team as well it may be a bit of a moot point since uh since pressures came upon the washington football team to uh to change his name frankly i can't honestly tell you how well the slants are doing with their <laughs> with their copywritten name um but but again, there's a ruling that clearly was an anti-native ruling. I I would, you know, venture to suggest. But that, so there, you, there you have that as well. Um, now the other thing that I want to talk about also is, look, people also were were proud to say that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg didn't avoid controversy, which isn't true. She look, she made her rulings whether they were controversial or not, but. In when she wrote a book um, and was doing her her book tour, you know, media um, tour, um, she was interviewed by I think Katie Couric, and she was asked about Colin Kaepernick. I think this was back in two thousand six, and and of course what she was asking was about Colin Kaepernick's taking a knee during the uh, the national anthem, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg in pure white fashion said it was stupid it was dumb she said um uh that kaepernick's protest was was dumb and disrespectful and she compared kneeling during the national anthem with all of the explanation as to why he was doing it she compared it to flag burning and she said i wouldn't lock anybody up for it but she basically said it was ridiculous to do such an act now look to not agree with it is one thing, but when you minimize the actions, especially, uh, you know, of, of marginalized people, you know, uh, in this case, you know, a, a black person who is who's trying to raise awareness to an injustice and you call that means for uh, for raising that awareness, dumb, disrespectful or ridiculous. It is it it goes beyond just saying I do. I don't agree with that uh, the way that uh, Colin Kaepernick was protesting. And, and of course, what we've seen as of late with, you know, all of the condemnation of the of Black Lives Matter and, you know, uh, taking to the streets and that kind of thing, you know, and not just the riots, but just the idea of, of people protesting. People have condemned that. Of course, when a football team stands arm in arm and says we're going to take a moment for, to, to demonstrate unity in, uh, in promoting social justice, you still got white people booing. So... Even in the in the Colin Kaepernick situation, she demonstrated her her roots, I guess. Uh, you know, uh, and and part of those are the are the racially biased roots that that a, even a woman who claims to be a champion of civil rights would um, she defaults back to saying, "No, it's dumb for uh, for a black man to take a knee during the uh, during the during the national anthem." And and again, to compare it to flag burning, look. She she made clear that she doesn't think somebody should be locked up for flag burning or for taking a knee, but it's ridiculous. And so she completely minimized, never even addressed the topic. 
She never, in the interview, she never said, look, Colin Kaepernick has a valid point. And, and it's funny, she had no problem basically calling Kaepernick's actions dumb and ridiculous. But in that same interview, she wouldn't even, she didn't criticize you know, Donald Trump at all as a, as a candidate. So she had no criticism for, for people in, uh, uh, in, in places of privilege, but she had plenty of criticism to somebody who, although was, enjoyed um, uh, a career in football up until that point, she had no problem calling that person dumb or his actions dumb, disrespectful, and ridiculous. And, you know, and, and again, I know there's a whole lot of people who think that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is just, you know, is a superhero, Wonder Woman. But there are, I think if you really did get into her, her record, her, her, the record uh, of, of the rulings that she had made, I think you're going to find in many, many cases that she just went with the flow um, or in some cases made, made bad rulings in spite of, you know, perhaps her own rhetoric. And I think that that is a problem. So I, I bring this up because I think it's, uh, there's a lot of praise being, being heaped upon Ruth Bader, Bader Ginsburg. And I'm not trying to just speak ill of the dead. That's not the point. The, you know, the point being here is that there's, there's another problem. And, and, and the problem is that if you ignore the, the bad rulings, uh, and if you only praise her as having always done done right by the Supreme Court, then you're validating you're validating those bad rulings. Now, the other thing that I will say, and and I, I and this is my opinion, that has more to do with the right versus left battle over replacing uh, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Look, when uh, when Scalia uh, died, and uh, and there were still ten months left in Obama's administration, and he wanted to uh, nominate uh, Garland as a um, as a Supreme Court justice. The Republican-controlled Senate refused. They said, "No, we're not. Go- we're not going to let a a president in an election year um, make a Supreme Court um, nomination." So they refused, and the Democrats were were appalled by it. And and look. I, it was wrong for the for the Republicans to um, to block a, um, a an Obama uh, nomination. It was wrong, and of course now they're they're flipping. Now they're saying with not with ten months left, but with only a little over a month. You know, forty forty or fifty days before the election, uh, you've got the Republicans saying, "Oh yeah, we're going to fast track and we're going to whatever nominee uh, Trump wants to put through." Of course, they're being inconsistent. But you know what? You know who else is being really inconsistent? The Democrats. Because if what you're saying the Republicans did was wrong during the Obama administration, then if you were consistent, you were saying, yes, it is right that he, he nominates somebody, even if it is only 45 days left in, uh, before the election or, you know, five months, six months to the, uh, to the inauguration. But what's, what's happened is, and, and even uh, Barack Obama weighed in on this. He's saying, well, that the fact that the Republicans have, have flipped shows their, their hypocrisy. Well, the Democrats have flipped as well, because if you think that, that, that um, Obama should have had the right to nominate somebody in the run up to uh, you know to an election. Then you must think that Trump has the right to nominate somebody in the run up to the election. You know, and look, 
am I crazy about Trump putting another person on the Supreme Court? No, because these guys, these guys make rulings that affect us. Obviously, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg made a terrible ruling, uh, and and it stands as a precedent that will be referred to for years to come in her City of Cheryl versus Oneida case. But I'll also say that look, we you know, some of uh, Trump's appointees like uh, Gorsuch has, has they've ruled uh, for native for some native cases. I will say that in all rulings, even the ones that are positive toward, you know, on the face of it, look like they're positive towards Native people, for the most part, they are not. They, they usually somehow uh, contain us in, in, in their law, laws. The Supreme Court never makes a ruling about our sovereignty. It, it, to the extent that they're talking about jurisdiction over uh, over a parcel of land, as in uh, Cheryl versus Oneida, it still isn't about asserting sovereignty. It's just about asserting governmental control over uh, uh, over a, pers- a parcel of land, which is different than sovereignty. These these courts never rule uh, uh, over real issues of sovereignty, and part of the reason is they probably can't. They're bound by their laws, and they're, they're also bound by trying to impose their laws on us. So none of these Supreme Courts and, and none of these justices view us as, as a people who have distinct um, autonomy from them. They're always trying to impose their will upon us. So it almost doesn't matter if it's right or left. We've had, we've had bad rulings by other uh, Supreme Court justices appointed by Democratic presidents. And when I hear Native people saying, oh, it's so important that we vote in this election because, uh, you know, Supreme Court nominees are are determined by the president. Well, yeah, they haven't always panned out very well for us anyway. So I I bring that up because I I don't think that we should get caught up too much. But I think it's it's fair to to point out the hypocrisy of the Republicans, but it also should be pointed out the the hypocrisy in the Democrats for for believing that because the Republicans got away with doing it to them, that they should be able to get away with doing it. There's no consistency either way. So both sides have flip flopped, and it just it's just more evidence of the failure of um, of justice and of equitable governance uh, by the United States. It demonstrates it over and over and over again. There is always a lot of pressure being put on Native people to participate in the U.S. governing systems, the the governance. And, and it's funny because we're seeing a lot more of the flaws being demonstrated. Um, and, and, I, and I say flaws. They're flaws in the whole system, whether it's electoral college, whether it's the, the distribution of, of Senate control to, you know, out of slave era concoctions to to give rural states the same amount of representations by the Senate as populated uh, in northern states, or whether it's, again, the distribution of electoral college votes, this stuff becomes more and more evident. I mean, I think it's people have to understand that the United or the, the Republicans, I should say, they actually haven't won a popular vote in an election in the last several presidents that they've, that they've had. Bush didn't win his initial, um, uh, w, George W. Bush didn't win the popular vote uh, when, uh, in, versus Al Gore, and nor, did, uh, and, and, and nor did Donald Trump. It just points to, the, to, the, to the, the failure of the system. And I say failure, this is the way it's designed. And so when we get pressure put on us as Native people, 
especially when we're, we're we you know the, the pressure over the Supreme Court nomination issue. Um, it's I don't think it's it's I don't think it's a reasonable request that somehow we need to step up in their electoral system, in their governing system. I you know I've said it before. We need to um, understand the idea of decolonization. But you know what? The the broad-based uh, American population, they also need to f- figure out where their place is in this in this process. Now, I I've heard it said that if uh, if is a is a democracy that, that that doesn't work worth saving, and and this isn't about whether Americans are are worth worthy of or whatever. But if the system fails, and and we're seeing this failure in the system, whether it's uh, associated with the appointment of Supreme Court nominations, or whether it's you know how do you count votes and, and who gets determined who the next president's going to be, whether it's the uh, the amount of control that that that. Uh, a sitting president has over everything from you know the military to the justice department um, uh, to you know, the appointment of, of justices. Some of these things demonstrate, especially when you, when you when you have a system that gives a lot more power to uh, to uh, away from the popul- uh, from the populace and more towards you know again slave era concoctions. It, it, conti- it continues to uh, to uh, cause injustice, and as we look at things like um, the, the call for police reform, that doesn't come in the hands of Republicans, but it also doesn't come in the in the hands of of centrist Democrats. So for for us as, as Native people who are, are are oftentimes get called upon to to step up to these to these elections or, or to the census or to to some of these other um, uh, United States processes, I say no, and and I think everybody has to decide where they fit in to some of these conversations because we we get inundated. With with propaganda and rhetoric, as it is, uh, you know, as it's as these uh, cycles go through. So, in this last run up to November third, there's going to be a lot of pressure, and there's going to be a lot of emphasis put on um, uh, on native candidates and 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 how much we step up. But I think that we have to understand that that the system isn't going to work for us. So whether it's Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the city of Cheryl case, or, or you know, or whether it's um, the, a lot of the border art, fought, uh, um, fights that are happening over a border wall, cutting through native territories or, or, or even the Canadian border cutting through native territories. These are problems that are always going to pit us against the United States, regardless whether it is a Democrat or Republican in office. So these kinds of problems continue, continue to, uh, to plague Native people. And, and until we draw some distinction between us and that process, us and the United States processes, then we will always be a very marginalized player in their system. This is part of the problem. And I think everybody has to understand, Native, non-Native, you know, U.S. citizens, non-U.S. citizens, that... The, what is actually transpiring with the way the United States is functioning, it, it's functioning as it was designed to, not to accommodate the marginalized, 
but to accommodate the aristocracy, to accommodate, in many ways, white supremacy. And you see it, whether it's in a Ruth Bader Ginsburg ruling or whether it's in the rhetoric of Donald Trump. So it doesn't matter how far on the left somebody thinks, uh, thinks the system is skewed or how far on the right it's skewed. In the end, as I say, I've said it many times before, racism isn't a right thing. It's a white thing. And for those of us who are marginalized by white supremacy and you know, by Euro-colonialism, we, uh, we have to be able to assert ourselves in a, in a manner that, that raises the question, that doesn't try to use the system. We can't use the tools of our oppressors to stop oppression. And I think that's, that's just something we all have to come to grips with. So, hey, look, I want to remind people, um, if you have not subscribed to our podcasts, um, which you can find by searching Let's Talk Native with John Kane podcast, you may be missing some content. And if you haven't um, subscribed to our YouTube channel, where you can find Legally Invalid, a, a great video that I did that kind of lays some of this stuff out uh, on the city of Cheryl versus Oneida case and Ruth Bader Ginsburg's ruling, um, you'll, you'll miss things like that. So, by all means, subscribe to our Let's Talk Native TV YouTube channel and catch all of that content as well. And I also want to remind people that we are on pay, on Patreon. So if you go to patreon.com slash Let's Talk Native, uh, you can support the show by becoming uh, one of our supporters on Patreon. Thanks for listening. No way.